Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. 20-year-old Colleen Stan woke up on the morning of May 19th, 1977, and started getting ready. She put together her belongings in a bag, getting ready for her trip. Colleen was bound for Westwood, California, which was almost 400 miles away. But when she threw her bag over her shoulder, walked out her front door, and got into her car, she found that her vehicle wouldn't start. She turned the key, over and over, but nothing. No problem, Colleen thought. I'll just hitchhike. Colleen managed to hopscotch between rides, skipping from truck to truck, as she made her way closer and closer to Westwood. And by early afternoon, she had made it to Red Bluff, California, less than 100 miles west of her intended destination. Little did she know, she would never make it that 100 miles west. When Colleen arrived in Red Bluff, being carried along by a well-meaning truck driver sitting in the passenger seat, she once again had to switch rides. This was as close as the truck driver was able to get. So Colleen was dropped off at a truck stop off of Interstate Highway 5, and in the temperate weather of Northern California, Colleen once again slung her bag over her shoulder and hiked up the off-ramp up to Highway 36 so she could start again, sticking her thumb up looking for her next ride. A car pulled over to the side of the road, with five young, loud, obnoxious men laughing and hollering, offering her a ride. They said they would take her anywhere she wanted to go. Colleen felt uncomfortable, recognizing that perhaps a car of five young men, practically sitting on one another to fit into the vehicle, wasn't the safest decision for a ride. So she declined. She walked away from the vehicle, once again sticking out her arm, with her thumb pointed to the sky. But she wouldn't have to wait long before another car came to a stop in the gravel of the road's shoulder. Driving the vehicle was an unremarkable-looking man, wearing glasses and looking rather bookish, and in the passenger seat sat a plain-looking woman, holding an infant. Colleen felt relieved. She felt safe. Seeing the child, realizing she was being offered a ride from a family, a wholesome, well-to-do Christian-American family, and she gladly hopped in the backseat of the vehicle and was glad to be on the road once again, watching the scenery zoom past her. Ten minutes had gone by, and Colleen sat comfortably, lazily, leaning against the door looking out the window. It would have been the perfect relaxing ride to hitch if it weren't for the fact that the man driving the vehicle kept staring at Colleen in the rear-view mirror, the glint of his glasses catching Colleen's attention. The couple stomped the vehicle for gas, and Colleen hopped out of the backseat to use the restroom. She walked across the parking lot, opened the restroom door, and locked it behind her. Whether it was God or an angel, or her instincts, 
While Colleen used the washroom and washed her hands, in her mind, she could hear a voice telling her to jump out the washroom window and run. Don't look back. The voice kept saying, run, Colleen, run, don't look back, jump out the window, over and over. Colleen shook her head, dismissing the idea of a divine voice or all-knowing instinct, thinking to herself that was just crazy. So she shook her hands dry and walked back to the vehicle, getting into the back seat. But as she eased herself in, she noticed what looked to be a strange wooden box sitting on the seat next to her, a box that hadn't been there before. That was strange, but feeling grateful for the ride and not wanting to pry, Colleen decided not to ask and just ignore the box as the car peeled out of the gas station parking lot and back onto the road. They made their way closer and closer to Westwood, where Colleen Stan's final destination lay, where she was excited to have a shower and wash the day off of her, to finally be done with hitchhiking and to surprise her friend for her birthday. But the couple first wanted to go see some nearby ice caves and asked her if that would be alright. Colleen, once again feeling grateful for the ride and not wanting to impose, said, sure, that's fine, as long as we aren't too long. And with her agreement to the idea, the car pulled off onto a side road, winding further and further away from the constant rush of passing cars and into the woods. The vehicle slowed and finally came to a stop, and the woman with her baby was quick to exit the vehicle, giving a little stretch as she got up and announced she was heading down to the creek. Colleen watched her saunter off with her child on her hip. But when she turned back to face the man who had been driving the vehicle to see where he was off to, she saw that he was now gone. Where did he go? She turned to look out the window once more towards the creek, but as she turned her head, his hands came through the window, one fist clenching the handle of a knife, and without saying anything, he forced her down onto the backseat of the car, leveraging his weight on top of her, and forced a blindfold around her eyes. Colleen, shocked by the situation she found herself in, watched through the slit of the crude blindfold as he grabbed the wooden box and opened it. There were hinges, so it seemed to Colleen as if the box opened like a clam. He then placed it over her head and nestled her neck in a hole that had been cut into the bottom, before clasping it shut and binding her hands behind her back. The wooden box that had sat beside Colleen's Stan fully encased her head and was insulated with pads of cut carpet to insulate her screams for help. The small, confined, claustrophobic space elevated Colleen's fear, mutating it into full-blown terror. Terror for what was to come next. Was he going to rape her? Was he going to kill her? Why the hell had he stuck her head in a box? Colleen soon heard the woman and baby get back into the passenger seat of the vehicle. She then heard and felt the car start, and then take off, turning around back towards the highway. Colleen Stan was then driven all the way back to Red Bluff, California, to a small, unassuming home on Oak Street. Creeps, my one hope is that if you take anything away from this podcast, if nothing else, if you leave me all alone in my mother's basement one day, that you take one lesson with you. Don't ever hitchhike. This isn't the first story we've covered of a hitchhiking trip gone wrong, and it won't be the last. As the car stopped at the small home, 
The woman and baby got out of the vehicle before Colleen heard the door of the back seat open up behind her and felt the seat compress as the man lurked over top her, unclasping the box and pulling her up and out of the vehicle, still blindfolded, and led her into the home. Colleen was led down into the basement where the man bound her in leather wrist straps at knife point and strung her up to a hook on the ceiling of the dingy basement. That's when he started to rip off her clothes. She stood atop a box so her wrist could reach the ceiling, and as he finished taking her clothes off, as she stood naked and strung up, the man pulled the box out from underneath her, suspending her by her wrist from the ceiling of the basement. Pain shot from her wrists into her shoulders as the full weight of her body hung from the straps, stretching her. The man then began to whip her with a crop over and over, seemingly relishing in her screams of agony and pain as the sharp sting of the whip took her breath away. Colleen could still see through the crude blindfold and through the tears of pain, and as the whipping stopped, the man in front of her, her captor, and his wife began having sex. As he finished, he walked over to Colleen and started rubbing his hands along her body up and down, and then Colleen blacked out. When Colleen regained consciousness, she was being unhooked from the ceiling before being led into the corner of the room where he placed her inside what she assumed to be a crate or a coffin-like box. The box her head had been encased in, on her drive back to Red Bluff in the backseat, was once again placed over her head and closed, before she was then enclosed inside of the box, before the man and his wife walked away, leaving Colleen in nothing but terrible, horrible, lonely darkness. That was only the beginning, a taste of what was to come for a very, very long time. The torture was daily. She would be strung up sometimes and sometimes chained to the floor as her male abductor would scream orders at her. Get up. Stand up. Shut up. Never addressing her as another human, but more like a disobedient dog. The wife, on the other hand, would come over to Colleen as she hung suspended in the basement from the ceiling and for a still unknown reason, would bite her, drawing blood from the 20-year-old Colleen's soft skin. While the couple were torturing her in the early days of her kidnapping, Colleen heard the man address his wife by saying the name Jan. Jan. Colleen had a name at least, which was a small comfort in the horror show she was starring in. And Jan, as Colleen had heard her being called, was just happy to have someone finally take her place as the focal point of her husband's perversions. Jan's name was actually Janice, and in 1973, Janice had been a sad, insecure 15-year-old suffering from low self-worth and epilepsy when she met Cameron Hooker, a 19-year-old boy she thought was cute. Janice was raised by overly strict and overbearing parents who wouldn't allow her to wear shorts or a nice skirt, let alone date a boy. But when Cameron Hooker entered her life, that all changed. By all accounts, Cameron Hooker wasn't handsome or accomplished or spectacular in any way, shape or form. He was quiet and bookish with a thick set of glasses that sat on his slightly bulbous nose. When Cameron asked Janice out, she said she'd have to ask her parents, but that had never worked before. Cameron, not taking no for an answer, went to her parents himself to ask for permission to take their 15-year-old daughter on a date, and after a short talk, 
Her father surprisingly agreed to allow him to take his daughter out. But their first date went anything but how her father would have imagined a bookish, honest-seeming young man would have taken his daughter on. On their very first date, after only knowing each other for a very short time and barely knowing one another at all, Cameron Booker convinced Janice to allow him to take off her clothes. Cameron undressed her in a secluded and wooded area. He then tied her to a tree, suspending her by her wrists. Janice agreed at first, and went along with what she assumed was normal. She was the daughter of overprotective parents in a time before internet. She had no idea what boys and girls did on dates. Perhaps that was sex. Perhaps that was normal. She had no way of knowing anything different. The treatment was harsh and painful, as well as humiliating to Janice. But she craved the attention that Cameron showed her and felt wanted for the first time in her life. 19-year-old Cameron whipped the 15-year-old Janice as she hung by her wrists from a tree. He was going to shape her, mold her into what he wanted her to be, to normalize the treatment. She was perfect. She had no way of knowing better. He could mold her attitudes towards sex and convince her this was normal. She was naive. Because, as I just told you, she was ignorant to what was normal, never being told by her parents, never finding out in school. And because of that, she was easily manipulated. By January 18, 1975, Cameron and Janice, still together, got married in Reno, Nevada. And while Janice thought perhaps he'd be softer with his wife than he was with her as his girlfriend, the sexual practices only became more painful. Cameron wanted a sexual slave, not a wife, and Janice would be that first slave. Several years had passed since Cameron and Janice had met, and the level of sheer brutality with which he treated her to service his own needs finally reached a point that Janice could no longer take. Janice wanted to have a baby. She wanted to be a mother and a proper wife, and Cameron wanted a sex slave, a woman who he could perform bondage on, who would be unable to deny him his wants and needs. So they did what many couples do and compromised. Janice would get pregnant and have a child, and Cameron would be allowed to keep a sex slave against their will to torture and practice bondage on. This seems insane to you, my creepy friends listening, and to me. There is no way on earth this could possibly happen. How could Janice go along with this so easily? But what we need to realize, and to try at least in part to empathize with, is that Cameron had molded Janice into a compliant victim, cooperating in her own victimization, in return for a reward. She would be allowed to have a baby, and in exchange for a baby, he would be able to have a slave. This was years in the making, years of abuse and reward. He serviced his needs by fulfilling her need to feel wanted and, in turn, feeding into her insecurities. So Cameron was allowed to keep a slave, and that slave was Colleen Stan, hidden away in their basement. There was one caveat to their agreement, though. Cameron Hooker was allowed to maintain a sex slave in the home, as long as he did not have sex with her. That was reserved for Janice and Janice alone. 
Colleen Stan had been missing for a week. By the time her parents in California got a panicked and worried call from her roommates in Eugene, Oregon, asking if they had seen or heard from Colleen. Unlike her roommates, Colleen's parents wasted no time, hopping in their car driving from Riverside, California to Eugene, Oregon, all the while reporting Colleen missing at police departments as they went, hoping to cast the net as wide as possible. But Colleen had disappeared. One minute she was standing feet firmly planted on the ground, laughing with friends and living life, and the next moment, at least to her loved ones, it was if she had never existed at all. But Colleen did exist. Colleen Stan was being held in a basement without any chance to escape. The first three months, Colleen and her captor developed a daily routine. Cameron Hooker would come into the basement and give her something to eat and drink before letting her use a bedpan. And then he would hang her up by her wrists and whip her and torture her until he was satisfied. As 1977 came to a close, 20-year-old Colleen Stan's previously happy life became one of only torture and captivity at the behest of Cameron and Janice. And then Cameron got an idea. He had seen it in an article in one of his favorite bondage magazines, an idea that would offer him complete control and ownership. Cameron Hooker walked into the basement, his wife trailing behind him, and placed a piece of paper in front of Colleen Stan before taking off her blindfold. He ordered her to read the paper and sign it, as he placed a pen on the table in front of her. The piece of paper in front of Colleen was a contract, filled with convincing legal wording, a prop in Cameron's fantasy. In the contract it stated that Cameron would own her body and soul, that she could not refuse him anything, and that she was to address Cameron only as Master Sir, and that she was to address Janice as Ma'am. Colleen, with few other choices, signed the contract, as the pen lifted off the paper, Cameron pulled out a leather collar, which he fastened around her neck, another requirement of the new contract between the two of them. And then Cameron began telling Colleen of the company, an ominous underground network of slave traders, created and formed to help keep slaves in line and capture and kill them if they were to run away. In fact, Cameron told Colleen, Janice had once been a slave who had escaped. Cameron was unwilling to see her punished, of course, and killed for wanting freedom, so he did what any good man would do. He married her in order to save her life. Colleen Stan was told she could walk out the door, she could call her family on the phone, but the company was always watching, and the company would kill her. Cameron started to allow Colleen to walk upstairs. She was allowed to roam the house to do chores, but whenever Cameron screamed attention... Colleen was mandated to get to the main archway in their home, where she would then have to strip down, touch the top of the archway, and hang there while Cameron would retrieve a whip to torture her with. In February 1978, Janice Hooker made an unexpected suggestion to her husband. Cameron, in an agreement, saying something to the effect of, you can have sex with Kay, Kay being Colleen's slave name. Janice didn't believe her husband would, their agreement was there was no sex involved. But this was all the excuse Cameron Hooker needed. Cameron stomped his way to the basement, took Colleen out of her box they kept her in, and brought her upstairs, where he proceeded to strap her to the bed, and then raped Colleen for the first time. 
All the while, Colleen could hear Janice in the adjacent bathroom, clearly bothered and distraught that Cameron would break this pact between them. And Janice began to vomit loudly into the toilet. Cameron had crossed the barrier that once existed, preventing him from raping Colleen. But once that barrier had been broken, there was no repairing it. Janice was only aware of the first rape, but Cameron proceeded to rape Colleen at least once a month. Four months later, Cameron and Janice bought acreage property off of Highway 99 just outside of Red Bluff and moved into a trailer home, taking Colleen with them. Now in a small home with no basement, Cameron was faced with the challenge of confining Colleen and resorted to building a box to sit under their waterbed, where Colleen would spend the rest of 1978. In this new setting, Colleen was let out from under the bed less frequently, and only to do house chores or to be tortured or raped by Cameron Hooker. All the while, Colleen's family continued to look for her, and started to assume she'd run away to join a cult, hopefully believing her to be alive despite not knowing where she was. Eventually, Cameron Hooker became more daring with his captive Colleen, allowing her to work in the yard, and in 1980, as a Christmas gift, allowed her to call her family on the telephone. He stood beside her, warning her not to say anything that would displease him, or worse, displease the company. Colleen's father was ecstatic to hear her voice, asking her why she hadn't called. But Colleen remained vague. Her father thought it was certainly Colleen. That much he knew, but she sounded different. No sooner had the call started than Cameron Hooker pulled the phone line and their brief conversation was over. Then Cameron Hooker decided to push it even further and see just how much control he could exert over Colleen. In March of 1981, Cameron Hooker told Colleen Stan that the company had given him special permission to allow her to visit her family. But first she had to prove her loyalty by sticking the barrel of a gun in her mouth and pull the trigger, which she did, anything to see her family. So on March 20th, Colleen and Cameron drove to her family's home in Riverside, California. The whole way Colleen was coached by Cameron on what the story was, that he was her boyfriend and they were going to get married, and that if she said anything to the contrary, the company was on standby ready to kill everyone she loved. She arrived at her family home and greeted her happy, beaming parents, glad to see her all right, a little skinnier, but otherwise safe and okay. Colleen introduced Cameron Hooker, her abductor, as her fiancé. Colleen's visit lasted less than a day, though, and when she was taken back to Red Bluff, having the hope deep in her heart that she'd be able to be with her family one day again, having tasted freedom... Well, nothing pleased Cameron more than knowing the despair she would feel when he ripped every freedom she had away from her, and for the next three years, Colleen was confined, more now than ever, to the box underneath the waterbed. Cameron had been emboldened by his ability to maintain Janice, who he still saw as a sex slave, as well as Colleen, his second sex slave, and declared to them both his plans to build a dungeon to keep yet more sex slaves. But the thought of having to share her husband with more women pushed Janice over the edge, an edge that she had been sitting on for so long. 
She didn't like Colleen. She was jealous of Colleen. She didn't like having a sex slave in her home. The idea of having a kidnapped woman put her on edge. And reasonably so. Eventually, and the details are unclear, but Janice began talking to Colleen, perhaps looking for comfort from a fellow woman who she knew resented the same man as herself in that moment. And all of a sudden, the dynamic of their three-way relationship shifted. No longer was it Cameron and his two sex slaves. It was two victimized, angry women against Cameron Hooker. On August 9th, 1984, seven years after Janice and Cameron Hooker abducted Colleen Stan, Janice took a trip to her local church and asked to speak with the pastor. Janice, having spoken to Colleen, had humanized her. She was no longer an object, she was a woman. And Janice couldn't handle what was happening any longer and confessed everything to the pastor. Her pastor urged her to leave, told her the unnatural and unholy nature of what had happened, and pleaded her to go to police and to help Colleen. Janice left the church in a hurry and headed to a motel, where a short while ago Colleen had convinced Cameron to let her work in order to help them with the quote-unquote family bills. And that's where Janice told Colleen the company was all a lie, that Cameron had no real power over her. Colleen instantly felt embarrassed and ridiculous, but given the circumstances of how insane everything already was, no one could blame her for her gullibility. With the help of Janice, Colleen called her family, spoke to her father on the phone, letting him know she'd be coming home, and headed to the bus stop. But before leaving, Colleen made one last call, this time to Cameron Hooker. He picked up the phone to hear Colleen on the other line. Empowered and emboldened, she told him she was leaving, and there was nothing he could do about it. Cameron started crying, and without a second thought, with a smile on her face, Colleen got on the bus and finally headed home. While Colleen was heading home, Janice headed to the police to tell them what had all transpired in the last seven years. But they were skeptical. How could this have happened? It was too insane. But after confirming with Colleen, on August 22, 1984, police arrested Cameron Hooker. But when the police went to the home and confiscated the torture-related objects, including the dreaded headbox... They had a difficult time finding anything that tied Colleen Stan to Cameron and Janice Hooker. And that's because unknown to the police, Janice had returned to her husband, who had ordered her to go to the home and destroy all evidence that Colleen was ever there. But Janice, as much as she tried, didn't destroy everything. Police found a stack of BDSM magazines, Cameron's old magazines, and as they flipped through the pages, out fell a negative onto the floor. Investigators picked up the photo negative and held it up to the light. It was a negative of a photo Cameron had taken of the contract he'd made Colleen sign, with her signature plain as day. Cameron Hooker was tried and sentenced to consecutive prison terms totaling 104 years for sexual assault, kidnapping, and using a knife in the process. For Janice's testimony against her husband, she was granted full immunity and never saw a day behind bars, living her life in anonymity 
and refusing to speak of Cameron Hooker and the kidnapping of Colleen Stan. So, creeps, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed this episode and want more, please consider becoming a Patreon member by visiting patreon.com slash talesbycole, where we release a Patreon-exclusive podcast weekly for Patreon members generous enough to donate $5 or more. If you have some time on your hands, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in getting these stories out there. And even more importantly, every five-star review gets me one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. You can also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound production and editing by Matt Black. Remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the doors.